Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Hi everyone. Welcome. So I'm Karen and this is Mark. Should he need any introduction, give him a wave. He's not allowed the microphone yet. Hopefully we're going to have a, a lively and informative evening. We've got three lovely speakers. Can we have some applause for our speakers, please? Thank you. They're going to speak a bit about something roughly related to autonomy and decision-making in birth and motherhood. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you guys? Yeah. I just Did you hear me say you, you guys then? Anybody who heard, has heard the last episode, oh. how much I hate that. Right, I know. I'm going to shut up in a minute. <laughs> um, we'd like to thank Martin at the back. As the, that's Martin's don't look at me face. <laughs> our lovely host, thank you. Um, I'm going to welcome our guests in a second, but first of all, what I'd like is to get Mark, you can't have it yet, um, to find out who we've got here. So let's do a bit of a straw poll to see who we've got here. H have we got any midwives? Got a couple of midwives? Uh, have we got student midwives? Oh, blimmin' hell. Uh, have we got any doulas? Cool. Have we got any antenatal teachers? Any hypnobirthers? Cool. Any yoga pregnancy teachers? Any, any uh, sling-wearing library owners? Um, any Reiki practitioners who specialise in pregnancy? I'm only joking, there must be some. Okay, so thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the evening. And uh, I'll hand back to Karen. Ah! Ah! Lactation consultants. Breastfeeding counsellors. Uh, sorry? Yeah, I'm coming to it, thanks. Have we got any mothers in the room? Any fathers in the room? Okay, anyone else? Oh, you're, you're, uh, you want to be a student, don't you? Student midwife. Anyone else that I've missed out? Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everybody. So I'm going to um, get our guests briefly, one after the other, to introduce themselves, though I imagine almost everybody in the room knows who they are. So um, if we start at this end this time, Vanessa, that's you first. Hi. Hey, hi. Um, my name is Vanessa Wallowenshaw, and I'm the author of Liberating Motherhood, Birthing the Purple Stockings Movement, which is why I'm wearing purple stockings and why Karen is wearing purple stockings. Um, and I'm a mother of two. I'm a breastfeeding counsellor, um, an activist and blogger. And uh, so thank you very much for welcoming me today. I'm really excited to discuss some of these issues with you all. Brilliant. Thank you for coming. Um, Becky. Hi everyone, I'm Becky Reed. I'm, um, I was going to say ex-midwife. I'm not a practicing midwife anymore, but I'm still allowed to call myself a midwife, apparently. Um, and I, you started with your book, so I am the author of Birth and Focus, along with lots of women. So maybe some of you have seen that book. Um, I'm a mother of four, grandmother of nearly eight. I'm also working a bit as a doula at the moment, and with Nadine, who's in the audience here, I'm writing a book on the Albany practice, which is the midwifery group practice that I worked in for 12 and a half years in Peckham, which was closed down by 
Becky's Heifer Trust in 2009. Thanks, Becky. I'm Dennis Walsh. I work at Nottingham University. I'm a midwife, interested in evidence, interested in midwife-led care, interested in place of birth. Aspiring feminist, I think I can say that, actually. A member of the Women's Equality Party, even. Also Australian. I always feel a little bit... um, a little bit coy speaking about um, choice and um, autonomy in birth as a, as a bloke, but I'm, I'm going to share with you my perspective as being in the maternity services and being a midwife over several decades. Um, a few, few of my thoughts around this. Fortunately, we're moving more into an era where I think autonomy in birth and we've got the person who wrote the book on this in Nadine there, a really important book in 2005. If you haven't read it, it's still a, a brilliant read. Um, the title of it, Nadine? Birthing Autonomy. Birthing Autonomy. So, yeah, so a fantastic book and one of the best PhDs. I was going to say this to you privately, but I'll say it publicly, that was ever done according to uh, various people who are in the know. You know, we're in an era where it's more upfront, where it's more acknowledged as a sort of guiding principle in maternity care. It's kind of enshrined really in policy. So it's really quite hard to argue against its realisation in this time. Having said that, there are lots of limits uh, around it in practice, I think, um, both organisationally and institutionally. So I just want to share a few thoughts around ways that people have understood this in the current environment. And most of this sort of comes out of research in this area, not just in the UK but in other countries. So I want to throw out a few ideas here that I think this is what autonomy and choice end up being uh, in practice for women in the maternity services. So at the top end, you've got informed choice. So that literally is, here are the choices, here are the pros and cons, and yes, you can choose actively um, what you want here. Right? That's kind of an ideal that most of us would sign up to. I think it's the least likely and the least operationally uh, in actually happens in practice. I think that happens in some places, but nowhere near enough. Far more common is what others have called informed consent. So informed consent is, this is what we recommend, but we can't really enforce it, so we need your consent to do it. And that, I'm thinking mainly of labour care here, Um, and you'll see that operationalised in the maternity services in the NHS quite a bit, and those of you who work in that will be, I think, familiar with how that plays out. So that's a watered-down version, obviously, of informed consent. But it's not as bad as something else, which is even possibly more common, which is informed compliance. This means we recommend this and we expect you to do it, basically. Um, And it's framed in that way and the whole language around being allowed and various other hints of it in the way that professionals use language, um, you know, linked to this idea. So research in this area has highlighted those kinds of three models um, and you can look at your own experience to see to what extent uh, you feel they they operationalise from your experience or from other women's experiences. 
clearly it's really quite difficult to make a choice, and the reason why informed is in front of that word, to make the phrase informed choice, is the critical element of information. So loads of people have um, researched this, including Mavis Kirkham, really quite importantly brought it up as a, such a, a key issue probably 15 more years ago now, um, but highlighted how important the information side of this is. And her work showed, which is common sense really, is that just giving out passive information is not really the best way of sharing information. It has to be couched within a discussion that has to be revisited, that's got to explore women's values, uh, their changing perceptions of, of what that means in pregnancy. So it's not something you can do with a tick box. Um, and you remember her work was around the informed choice leaflets that Midders developed uh, in the late 90s, I think, and showed how ineffective it can be just to passively disseminate that. But there's something else that goes on here too that I think is even more important. Uh, and I want to really highlight this because there's so much talk around about testing the waters out there about what women want from maternity services. To really make an informed choice, you need to talk to people who've had the opportunity to experience both options. So there's something in research which is called what's experienced is best. So and those of you who've been involved in research will know that survey work where you're presenting theoretical options often defaults to what I had must be the best because that's what the service offered me. So this is really critical when you look at something like continuity of carer. So I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of debates around this in the caseload model that Becky and others modelled for us in the Albany group years ago. But you know, this notion that it doesn't matter if I have someone in labour who I've met before as long as she's kind and caring. Women who've never experienced caseload may often say that. But as soon as you talk to a woman who's had the caseload experience, she'll say it was absolutely incredible and it made a real difference to know that person and know my story, to know my plans, to know me, to have a relationship established. So I want that's not often said in this whole notion of just surveying women's views, that you know, to have a more comprehensive and authentic take on that requires women to be able to have or speak to somebody who's had the experience of both options. Uh, and then you're in a place where you can make that more informed judgment. So I'm particularly raising this because I'm hearing at the moment we're involved in some research in, in Nottingham around freestanding midwifery units. And I'm hearing this kind of narrative that says, well, we're going to close this small obstetric unit and we'll test the waters of whether, whether local women would like a freestanding unit here in a city to replace their closed obstetric unit who've never, ever experienced a freestanding unit, maybe don't know people who've had one. If you do a passive survey, it's not that likely they're going to come back and say, that's what we really want to replace our previous obstetric unit. You see what I'm saying here? It's the real importance of having somebody who's experienced that as an option and been able to compare two systems. So that's, that's I think, important. A couple of other thoughts. Um, midwifery is really keen on the word empowerment. Those of you who are student midwives probably come across this already. And it's so easy to use language like that, isn't it? But when you unpick empowerment, you start to look at types of power. 
And empowerment doesn't mean clearly power over, because uh, that's one way you could take it. And people use empowerment in a paternalistic way. We are empowering you. Well, it's salutary to remind ourselves that the New Zealand College of Midwives have got a, a fabulous model that's really impregnated with a feminist value system explicitly rejected that and said that's about paternalistically giving power to you. This is partnership actually where you have agency, true agency, another word for autonomy, about what's going on. It's not about we giving you power. It's you discovering and being able to realise that power from within yourself. So we have to be a little bit we have to unpack words like empowerment because they can be used oppressively. Um, power with, more consensual, sounds like more relationship focused, uh, more like a partnership model. Um, power within, probably the, the one we'd want to, to nurture because that's kind of internal upwards that really says there's agency happening here for the individual. So that's another thought. And one of the most important aspects of childbirth, of course, just to finish with, is the fundamental right of power over what's happening to your body. Uh, and that has to be a, a starting principle for maternity services. That that is one of the most fundamental rights of all, what's happening to your body. Um, and we need to constantly remind ourselves that this is what we're doing when we're interacting with women going through childbirth, um, that we don't want to tread on that fundamental human right. And we give thanks to people like Birthrights, Rebecca Schiller and others who've highlighted the importance of human rights in childbirth. Thanks, Dennis. I could see Vanessa nodding furiously. Would you like to respond? Um, well, yeah, I was thinking there was a couple of things that you mentioned, actually, um, when we talked about what autonomy is. And actually, I was thinking, well, what, what autonomy isn't? as well and autonomy in motherhood it's a, it's a it's a big thing when i when i had my first child it was a few days later i said to my doula birth is a feminist issue and from a feminist perspective i don't think i'd ever really put my mind to that i'd done hypnobirthing i'd thought all about it and i'd wanted a home birth and everything else but i think the, the fundamental issue with birth is it concerns women and our bodies and these are scary things to patriarchy if we want to start talking about sort of feminism. But it's also quite, um, it's a primal thing. And for a lot of women in our culture, connecting to our bodies can be quite scary. We don't necessarily have a village anymore. And we talk about that, don't we, a lot in sort of breastfeeding support and everything. But if we don't have women around us, if we've, if we've never seen a postpartum woman, if we've never supported a friend or a sister in labor, we don't really know what we're getting ourselves into, which is why informed consent, I mean, it's so, it's fundamental if we talk about women's rights in maternity. So I've written about really how, from a women's perspective, power is something quite difficult to define. When I gave birth, I felt powerful for the first time in my life. And when I gave birth a second time, I nearly hit the roof, it was even more, it was that primal feeling. And I wish that for my daughter, it's her legacy when she was born, you know, I, that's her legacy and I want her, when she grows, to give birth in an environment which is caring and compassionate 
where she knows her body, she knows what her rights are, where she doesn't hear stories of fear when it comes to birth. And that translates to motherhood as well. I, mean, I talk about motherhood. When we talk about motherhood as being drudgery and breastfeeding as a tie, what that does is it instills for women a sense of um, lesser, you know. And when you look at feminist theory, Simone de Beauvoir talked about the second sex and how we are other. And if you think about that, you know, we are not other in any sense more profound than when we become mothers. You know, suddenly we think, what's happened to us? We feel like different people. You know, I, I really related to what Dennis was saying there because I'm, as a lay person, though I'm a breastfeeding counsellor, I'm dealing with a lot of postpartum women and what they bring to their breastfeeding journey often is a sense of disappointment sometimes. But also for women who where it was overwhelmingly positive, they feel f fearful about talking about it. You know, in a postnatal group, they might fear, feel that they're being smug or that, or, well, you know, I don't want to upset anybody because we are very sensitive in the postpartum period. So, really, I think it's changing the conversation when we talk about language. I think that is um, the main part of it, is that we have to instill in women a sense of pride, a sense of power, a sense of confidence and love in our own bodies. And if we can do that, actually, that's a big step. And it's nothing more powerful, if you think about it, than people who love themselves and who feel that they can do this. Just that idea, I can do this. And I know, you know, strong since birth. You know, it's a big thing. So, yeah, as a layperson, it's, and as a feminist, you know, it was a big driving force behind writing and, act, and being an activist because I felt that if our first experience as a mother, obviously it starts with pregnancy and birth, and that could inform our entire feelings of our mothering journey in the early years. And as a society, we have to start valuing what women bring um, to society, which is reproducing the human race. So when I talk in places about, you know, that we need to support mothers in mothering and breastfeeding support and how we need to enable women who want to care for their children to care for them at home rather than forcing women to go back to the workplace against their wishes, often some people say, well, why should we support other people's children? And it's actually, well, they're not pets. They're not lizards. They're not bonsai trees. They are the future of the human race. And every person on the planet grew inside a woman. And that is, that is you know, when you think, and, I, and I've been like, an idiot, because I thought, well, it didn't really occur to me until I had a baby of my own. <laughs> you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, so, yeah, this is... It starts there, and I think if we don't treat women well in the birthing room, then we've got no hope, really, for women in society generally. Thank you. Mark's now nodding furiously. <laughs> Do you want to...? Very early on, I was, in, I was just in awe of a woman birthing, and I felt on the outside because I experienced the world as a man with a, with a masculine neurophysiology. I can experience the world no other. And, and birth from day one was a mystery to me, a, a beautiful mystery. But in the environment, I could smell a man in the environment. I could smell the, I, I, I could sense the, the fingerprints of a male way of seeing the world all over the structure. Let's measure this mystical experience that we cannot understand but will seek to control through the illusion of measurement. And I, 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 I could have got lost in the structures because it, it resonated with me as man. I left midwifery after 
17 years be because I felt that my very presence in the room was, de was, was potentially uh, reducing the power uh, of the birthing woman. You see, as a midwife, I knew that my role was only to point to the source of birthing power inside the woman. So, you asked. <laughs> Thank you. Any, any questions for Dennis? Hi. Um, you talk about empowerment, and I think that we really want every woman to feel empowered by her birth. And um, when I say empowerment, I, I want a woman to be fully in control of all the decisions that she made throughout her birth. And I felt very empowered by birth, and I've had people question why I found my home birth empowering. And it's not for anybody to understand why I found it empowering, but I did, and it was because I was leading it. It was my birth. And I think all women should feel that way, that they're totally in control of every decision that's made about their birth and about their body. Actually, so I don't suppose you mind if I just... But that's the autonomy issue when it comes to that women have the right over our own bodies. And somehow that, as, an, as a feminist, you know, when you talk about reproductive rights, for example, and abortion rights and contraceptive, contraceptive rights and, and birth, somehow we are, we, in some cases, you know, you've still got people in America calling pregnant women hosts, you know. And it's that idea that somehow when we become pregnant and we're birthing women, we lose the right of control over our own decision-making. And it's exactly that. You said about empowering women and about the fact that actually we can't, we can help them find that power, but they have to claim it. And I think when I've spoken to women before about having choices and all this kind of stuff, and women have said to me that they actually find that quite scary and they would rather have somebody else make those decisions for them. And so how can we help those women claim that power? How can we help those women take that and not feel fearful of it? I'll ask that to Becky because she's been doing that most of her professional life, I think. Thank you. That's, that's lovely. So shall I answer your question first? And the answer is to work with the woman and to, if you possibly can, work in a model of midwifery that provides continuity of carer, not care, throughout the woman's journey so that you work in a partnership with the woman. So we don't have any of this nonsense about who's up there and who's down there and all the rest of it. Because in that, in that model, you then have the possibility of all those things. It's not about, I mean, I've, I've worked with lots of women, women who have never actually made a choice for themselves in their lives, and then suddenly if you turn to them and say, well, actually, would you like to have your baby at home or in hospital? They haven't got a clue, and they want you to make a decision for them. But if you work with that woman in partnership throughout her journey and keep all the choices, as far as possible, open all the way through, then it becomes a natural thing, and it isn't a problem. And it isn't about power, but it is about... It is about partnership and it is about all the things that Dennis was saying. And, you know, I, I come back to Michelle and her um, wanting very much to say she felt empowered. And that's absolutely right because we all have the right to say how we feel. And that's exactly what you felt, isn't it? But I, I completely am with Dennis in thinking we can't, we don't want to say we've empowered you.
I think that was part of the reason why I felt so empowered because everybody was trying to take the choice away from mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. constantly, all the time. Mm-hmm. Own, they was trying to own my birth. And because I took it back and owned mm-hmm. it, it was so empowering mm-hmm. because it was like I did this against all mm-hmm. the odds, against everybody t- that told me that I couldn't. Mm-hmm. But because I owned it, it was so empowering. But I think your experience, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, is because you were comparing it with previous experience and what had happened in that pregnancy as well. So if somebody had come along at the beginning of your pregnancy and held your hand, you'd held their hand or whatever, however you want to put it, throughout the pregnancy, you'd still have felt great. Absolutely, you would have felt great, yeah. And I think it was the realisation... took me perhaps two pregnancies to realise that actually I own my body. Nobody else owns this. Mm. I own it. And I'm leading the situation. Mm. There's a lot of women. They're not told that. It's not enforced. Mm. It's this is what we're going to do. Or there's, you know, ownership is always taken away from them. The language, Mm. the way they're spoke to Mm. is though they're not grown women that are uh, in charge of their own bodies. Mm. So it it might be useful maybe to just think a little bit about this um, model of care that we're hoping will take off at some point, which we know is possible and we know delivers fantastic outcomes and we know delivers huge satisfaction for all of those involved. And, you know, when Michelle is talking in the way that she's talking, I feel feel very... um, Like I really want to explain about how if you... If you are the midwife and you meet the woman for her very first visit and you go and visit her at home and you see her in her own environment and you start talking in the language that we're hoping that we're talking about and you start by saying, this is, this is about you, this is about you, I will be your midwife, I am your midwife and I will be with you on this journey and I will be there when you have your baby and I will look after you afterwards. That's, you were talking about women not, being able to make choices because they didn't know what the option, what the other option was, and the interesting one of the interesting things about working in the community I worked with in Peckham in South London here was that most of the women didn't know that that wasn't normal, <laughs> so they didn't realise. And later on in their pregnancies, they would sort of their sister might be popping round, and then they the sister would be going, "Well, I want what you've got. I I want I want a midwife. Thank you." And they might be pregnant and they might have seen 20 midwives by the time they were ready to give birth. So if we can, if we can think about how that, how that affects women and how that impacts on women and how they feel about it afterwards. And again, I mean, I'm going to refer to Nadine in the audience again because she's done some work interviewing women about how that experience impacts on them. Um, and it's an incredibly powerful thing. There I go, using the word power. Hi, um, I'm a student midwife. Um, considering everything that's been said about power and autonomy, do you think that a woman can choose an elective section with power? Um, especially kind of based on the idea of wanting what you know. Um, can that be a powerful decision as well? Who's going to take that on? <laughs> I'll happily say, I would absolutely say 100% yes. Absolutely. Because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could say because, but no, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's one of her many choices. I mean, I suppose I'd probably want to say something about um, resources. Um, 
and inequality because um, no choice is in a vacuum, isn't it? You're part of a society. If you hog resources, that means someone else might... I know this might sound controversial, but I, somewhere in that debate there has to be some reference to equal distribution of resources. If we all... I mean, obviously an extreme, but we all choose elective caesarean. That's going to be hugely expensive for the NHS. So anyway, could, that I, just could I come back on one thing on that? There were many women in this world, actually, I would say country, but women across the world, a large number, an un unacceptable number of women have been the victim of sexual assault at some point in their life. They may not have told anybody. We expect, I mean, for example, they may want a cesarean section to avoid something traumatic. And if we demand that women justify their choice to have an elective cesarean, that is oppressive upon women. So that's when it comes to, I can see, obviously there are issues about resources, but if we have the best of both worlds, which is an, an excellent maternity service, and the freedom to choose cesarean section for no reason at all, and that you did not need to share those reasons with anybody, then actually I think that is ultra-respective of women, you know. So, yeah. But coming back to the continuity of carer model, if, if that woman, and there are many, many of them, if that woman is in a situation where she feels completely trusted and trusts her carer, then she may make different choices. So there is a, there's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot to discuss around cesarean section, not least the impact on the woman's body and her future childbearing and so on. So it's, it, a lot of it is about information as well. But given all of that, it's, it's absolutely a do, do you feel there's also an element from, a, from professional points of view? If you have, some women, for example, have very difficult births and the second time they're adamant that they want a cesarean section... And they are adamant, you know, I need to have a cesarean section. And then there are other women who have a difficult birth first time and a cesarean section, emergency section, and then they're fighting for a vaginal birth, you know, it's, yeah. it's all, you know, it's way. But for those women who had a difficult birth first time around, if improve, if maternity services were improved, then obviously that's going to have a knock-on effect. There will be fewer damage limitation C-section requests in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, thank you for asking a question because it's a tough one. For us to kind of address maybe in this setting, um, Jill Thompson, who's a psychologist, did a really interesting study called Redemptive Birth, and it's been published. And she found for some midwives an uncomfortable finding that that scenario where someone had a previous traumatic birth. She interviewed women who had subsequent births. A lot of them went into a supportive midwifery model of continuity care and chose home birth even and other types of midwife low-tech births, but some chose elective cesarean and said they had a redemptive experience. So it's just that thing of not being absolutist about it, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. uh, we, we have to accept that those different perspectives and respect. The existing, NH, the existing NICE guidelines allow for that really now. They've made an adjustment to, to respond to that request for elective cesarean. People want to dichotomise it and say all or nothing, don't they? So. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, once you've made the choice and you've had your redemptive caesarean, you don't actually know what it would have been like if you'd done something different. And you can only do that birth once. There are a lot of women who regret the choices they've made and regret 
their births. I guess we can only do what we can do at the time. And, and speaking as a midwife, I am very much in favour of women not making choices or not feeling pressurised to make choices until, about birth, this is, until the very, very last minute. Because so many of our birth choices are very dependent on the occurrences that, are, that uh, are happening during our pregnancies. As a midwife, once you've got a woman who's already in labor and you visit her at home, which is what was part of our, um, our practice, then you're working with a completely different scenario about choice. I'm getting on to you know choice of place of birth and choice of type of birth, but you know that that um, it just makes life so much easier and actually so much safer. It's much safer to practice like that because you've got you've got a scenario where a woman is well and she's uh, grown a, a, a good sized baby and she's gone to term with her baby and you as her midwife because you know her well you know which way round the baby is and she's gone into labor, and she's continuing to labor, and she's feeling supported, and she's drinking well, and she's doing all the things that she feels happy with, and you then turn up, this woman is pretty much guaranteed to have a straightforward birth at that point. When you talk about uh, births that are not straightforward, and you look at the women who don't have straightforward births, then you'll see that at some point in their in their birthing journey, they haven't done the things that I've just described. So they are, they've already moved themselves to the hospital or they've already been induced or they've already got a problem. One of the things that I notice um, when we're, I'm talking to women, I'm an antenatal teacher, uh, that impacts on their choices are that they're not just making the choice for them or their baby, they're quite often making the choice for their partner too that how they want to give birth is quite often in a very dignified way, so he won't have to see anything too, too horrible. Um, and that makes quite a big difference for them. And you know, also, the, it, it's like they feel that they want it to be very clinical so that he doesn't have to get upset, especially if they're worried about how he's going to cope with it. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be that they have, feel that they have the choice, that the man doesn't feel that he has a choice whether he's there or not. Even if he doesn't want to be there, he's pretty much, he's got to be there. He feels he has to. And she feels that as well, that she can't say to him, maybe this isn't the best thing for us. For you to I mean, I, I personally think we, have, we need to revisit that, and it's about encouraging women to choose the appropriate companion. For some, that's going to be their partner, but for others, it won't be. So it's about how we challenge that cultural norm that says men have to be present. As a midwife, you see situations where it's quite a toxic presence, a little bit like you're describing there. I mean, because birth is is so such an embodied experience, you, you cannot really sanitise it. <laughs> Um, and if you do, you're going to start compromising physiology and other things. So um, for men, they either have feel a, a sort of let-out clause or do the prep through Mark's work, etc., to, to be a constructive facilitatory presence. Sort of going in there without, you know, without being prepared is, 
it's not a good mix, really. Um, the reason I do the work I do is that we have 95% of men present. At, so, so my work focuses on pointing to the source of birthing power. Once you make the distinction between being in the room and being present, a potential arise to create a context where oxytocin isn't inhibited. You know, I've worked with men who said they felt left out. You know, they felt... One man who said he felt completely, uh, what was his word, emasculated by the experience of being present. And I remember thinking, what kind of foundation is this going forward as a parent? So... Yeah, I, I am not an advocate of, of male rights at all. I don't care whether they're there or not. But given our situation, we want to offer something that potentially creates an environment where the hormones of birth that have been birthing humanity for millions of years, a, a context is, is potentially created that facilitates the release. So, It's very interesting. I mean, I've, I'm old enough to have gone from the thing where knowing that it was really hard to have your partner at your birth and my husband who's in the audience here we went to classes we went to antenatal classes where we learned learned how not to be separated as we went into hospital with our first baby and the the whole thing about we were fighting for for men to be present at the birth and you know, I I was glad to have him there, but I'm sure that probably I would have been all right if he'd chosen not to be there. And I'm interested in the 95%, because I think that 95% of men wouldn't choose to be there. There is, we're talking about our present society right now, and you're also talking about a particular culture, because actually I've worked in, you know, I've worked with a lot of African women and, and uh, Vietnamese women and... You know, it's not expected in the same way at all. <clears throat> Do you but think it's symptomatic of the fact that we have a very much a nuclear family set up in our culture? That if yeah. we have the babies conceived in a bedroom or sofa or wherever um, with, <laughs> with the father and the expectation is the baby would be born in that same environment, you know, with the partner, father present. So, But not on the sofa, know, presumably. Not, well, I don't know. I mean, some babies are born on the sofa at home, the aren't they? You know? The expectation is, is that, that you... Um, is know, that 97% if you go to hospital and have yeah. your baby on a hospital bed? But I suppose it's the, it's the fact that, in a way, with, with the nuclear family, it's the idea that the husband and the wife meet each other's emotional needs, meet every need of the other, the partnership. So that is translated mm -hmm. in the birthing room. Mm -hmm. It kind of, it's, it's kind of like in a microcosm, really. And, and what uh, and an on, onus that is and on, it is, on actually, the father. Because actually. it's an onus on the father, but it's also, I mean, my husband and I, we talked to me, we had a doula, and I had to explain to him, she wasn't there for emotional support. She was there to be my advocate in, as an experienced, I mean, the doula is here, as an experienced labour partner. But I think the other thing is there's pressure on women even to have the partner there. Because yeah. for some women, they don't want to poo in front of their husbands. You know, so doing it for the first time during birth is terrifying in itself. So things that were, you know, the idea that actually all women should be able to say, I only want to give birth with my mum there or my doula, or my best friend, <laughs> and for the husband or partner or father not to feel in any way excluded, mm. or, you know, but the exclusion from the birthing room, it's a very, it's a modern thing that we now have that dilemma, what we once we fought for them to be there, and now we're fighting potentially to say, Absolutely. get out while well, I'm laboring, you know, the Michelle Odon mm. argument, you know. I'm quite interested to ask. I've never asked my husband this question. He's there. Well, he's, he's here there. tonight. And, 
he's, he's here tonight. I can I can I ask you now? <laughs> but the first time, and our our first child was forty last year, and. Um, in the book that I've written, Birth in Focus, I, I used her birth story as the first story in the book to look at uh, the context I was coming from, where we had our baby and Adrian was there and he was in the birthing room and he took, the he took photos. Do you want to say something? Well, I was, I, I was desperate to, to take the microphone because I think the father's voice is very missing at the moment. I mean, for me, you know, this was a... For our birth experience with our first child, this was a child we had made together. I wasn't going to miss out on the birth. And this is a journey we were going on together. We'd, we'd been to classes. We'd worked through it. This was a partnership thing. Yes, I couldn't be, I couldn't have the baby physically myself, but I damn well wasn't going to miss out on it. And, and it was an, it was an exciting journey. It still is exciting to think about it, actually. It was absolutely brilliant. I wasn't, I, I didn't worry about things going wrong. I mean, there was obviously a, an element of what we'd been taught might, ha might happen. But actually, that wasn't central to my thinking at all. We were having a baby. It was all, Progressing very nicely, we were ahead of the chart, or whatever. whatever. <laughs> and, I like um, the we, by the way. Yes, we. <laughs> yes, yes. We you know, were ahead of the chart. Yeah. So, I, I would like—I would just like to say, you know, it was—it was a completely magical experience and, and, and overwhelming, and I uh, wouldn't have missed it for anything. And for other uh, other three children, I was there for that for that for them as well. And. I couldn't have imagined not being there, although oddly enough, um, I took the night off work after our daughter was born, <laughs> and I was told I was the first person to have actually had a night off from my work, which was which was playing in an orchestra. The first, first person to have actually had a night off after my daughter after a child was born. All the other members of the orchestra said they just went to work as normal. Uh, so, you know, it, it was the end of a particular era, I think. I also then turned out to be the first person who actually hadn't gone to a rehearsal because my daughter was, you know, I was having a child being born. In those days, um, your professionalism at work was such that you turned up no matter what, you know, the show had to go on. That was, that was the thing. And actually, I thought having a child is a bit more important than that. I was just nodding away. I agree. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I don't know if you want to comment, then. I think you got in the pool. I, 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 I think if you're married to a male midwife, you've got a double whammy going on there that <laughs> could be quite dysfunctional. <laughs> and our first birth, I've just got loads of regrets about it because I was swapping hats so often during the labour that it wasn't working for Anne. Um, so, yeah, second was far better. Thank you. Becky, can I invite you well, to... I can just come back. Well, I'm, my thing is birth stories. Um, and it always has been. And I used to write for the practicing midwife and I used to write uh, photo stories. And from that, out of that came the book that I wrote last year. Um, but I used to occasionally write other stories too. And when I was thinking about this thing about autonomy and choice, I thought about um, a story I wrote about a 15-year-old girl who, Linda, her name was, and 
she was uh, she was pregnant at fifteen. She hadn't chosen to be pregnant, but that was that was what had happened. And we were her midwives, and we looked after her. And she had she had her baby in Lewisham Hospital. With there were four generations present actually, because she had her baby, and her mum was supporting her. But she was leaning on her nan when the baby was born. And we it was a lovely it was a lovely birth. And I got to know the family because that's how we worked, and it was very nice. And we stayed in touch for a while, but inevitably, you know, things carry on, and and we we lost touch. Although I have to say, just quickly, that she used to come because in our in our practice we ran antenatal groups and postnatal groups. And Linda, she, I mean, I'm 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 struggling not to use the word power now because she was amazing, and she she got it about having babies, and she knew her stuff. And she would sit in the postnatal group and just teach the women, the you know, the forty-two-year-olds who were in the group feeling anxious. She would tell them all about birth, and it was fabulous. But what uh, what happened with Linda was that she um, she disappeared off my radar. She was in my memory bank, but she disappeared off my radar. But uh, a few years later, she was still a teenager. A few years later, she was pregnant again. Now I didn't know about that, um, but. This is where I find it interesting about the autonomy, the choices, how important things are for, for women having babies. She didn't know where I was. And she set about this search. And it was just, it was so interesting to, and, and actually very moving. Because what happened was that I got a letter, which I'll read to you. And it says, I don't know if you remember me. You and Marlene delivered my baby Nathan back in August 95. I have moved since and now having another baby. I have had bad trouble trying to get hold of you. In the end, I went and got this address. I've had nothing but stress during this pregnancy and some awful things have happened to me between the hospital and midwives at the doctors. I'm writing to you to ask you, please, in capitals, would you take me on? The baby is due in September. I don't mind traveling to you and would be willing to have my baby in whatever hospital you work in now. Even if you cannot give me before and after care, if you only have a space to deliver the baby, please consider me. Now, I found that very moving and very interesting because it showed absolutely the importance of her previous care, but also it showed how strong she felt and how strongly she felt about doing what she did. She wasn't going to give up, and I was so impressed. And, you know, of course, of course, she, you know, we looked after her and she went on and had a beautiful water birth at home, actually, and she then breastfed that baby. And it was, it was a very moving experience for me, but it taught me a lot about how important, I mean, I knew, it, I knew it, but it reinforced how important her autonomy was, her choices, her, the fact that she was making her choices and she knew that's how it would carry on. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd share that story with you. And When you hear that sort of story, and I did some interviewing of um, women who experienced caseload in Leicester in the 90s, and I can remember being in the car after one of these interviews. And when I hear stories like that, I just think, what is wrong with our system where one woman gets that and 99.9% are getting the scraps on the floor of the rest of the system? You know, it's just tragic that we can't provide that model. Um, and it's a really good example of you chase what you previously had because it was so incredible. You'll chase it to the end of the earth. But there's a whole load of women out there who are accepting second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth best experiences and think that's all that's on offer.
Well, it's a tough, it's a tough world, isn't it? Because especially with midwifery coming from in in our society, uh, nursing, and the idea that you can't get close to people and that you mustn't be part of their journey because 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 why? Has anybody got the answer to that? I'm, I don't understand it. You're not supposed to be friends with people you are helping with their babies, and in fact, one of the um, obstetricians in the hospital that we were linked with in our practice used to pass me in the corridor when I was in with a woman and she used to say oh you've brought one of your friends in as if to say you know you you do it this way but actually we can't do it that way and we can't it was like we can't afford to do it that way because we're professional and we keep a distance and only that way can we can we be safe does that make sense yeah, I mean, one of the sort of hidden gems, not hidden at all because it's so obvious in all the evidence and in a way, you know, we can use evidence here and we, don't need, we need to speak about it more and more and more. But the evidence was just incredibly strong from the 1970s that an untrained female companion, so just in the doula studies that went back to that time, reduced cesarean section rate. And this has nothing to do with skills technical knowledge, this is compassion, empathy, alongside being with, um, and you know we won't, don't want to recognise it because the professionalisation of midwifery and obstetrics, you know, we have to, we have to believe that there's, that project is adding value. I'm not saying you know, we don't need to train midwives, but we have to acknowledge that that evidential base is one of the most powerful of all. It's more powerful than the place, the technology, you know, the highly skilled technicians and all the rest of it. If you just got that right at the beginning, we wouldn't be in the, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be dealing with all the intervention stuff that we've yeah. accrued in the Western world. So that's an interesting thought, isn't it, when it comes to looking at why our practice was closed down and the fact that we were providing care with much reduced technology use and much reduced obstetrician use and much reduced hospital use and much re reduced drug use and all of those things potentially a threat, certainly a concern, a challenge, I guess, to look at um, if you didn't intervene and if you did walk alongside women, they were going to make choices to have their babies at home with people they knew. Do you, have you got any thoughts on that in terms of the, I mean, I'll use word, Mark's word there, the patriarchy, that's, you don't even know you're swimming in it. How do you unmask it? You know, what do you... I mean, one of the things I've said quite frequently at speaking events is to say to people, you know, I don't hate men, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm married to one, I've got a dad, a brother, I've got a son, and, you know, it's not really, you know, but there, the, the fact is, you know, as a culture, we live in a patriarchal society, and that goes to the fact that um, male standards and ideals, and they dominate in every area. So when we look at birth and when we look at maternity services, breastfeeding services, one of the reasons why I think things aren't going to change unless we have a fundamental rethink of how we live our lives is because it's the, it's the thin end of the wedge, actually. You know, it's, it, if we think that, Allowing women, I know that Millie Hill talked about positive birth, you know, the idea of women talking to each other is quite dangerous. We can't trust women to have coffee and cake and chat to each other about how wonderful birth is. We have to get in there and we have to monitor what they're saying and insurance and all this stuff, you know. So when it comes to patriarchal ideas about 
male worth, um, power, um, importance, money. It goes, it's, it's something very alien to the birthing world and to birthing women, to birthing women. So, yeah, that's something that I wrote about because I found that if you look at when talking to women postnatally while they're struggling to breastfeed, is that for professional women, for example, they will say, you know, I've been educated in everything, particularly as a feminist success, by the way, we're educated in everything, and rightly so. But the, thing, the things we're not educated in is breastfeeding. We may not have even held a baby until we hold our own. We haven't seen breastfeeding. We, we don't know much about birth. So the things that, in order to give birth, you know, the, the female wisdom, that's something that almost, it's not to say it's a conspiracy, because it's not. It's just, it's a cult, it's so embedded that we, we don't see it. And so it's challenging, I think, within... I talk about, about you know, the political side of, of things. If we were to challenge governments to divert significant amounts of money to women to enable them to have one-to-one -one midwifery care throughout their pregnancy and birth, and I argue postnatally, why we should never leave a room with a postnatal woman and a baby. She should be cared for 24-7. She shouldn't have to ring a bell in hospital. She should have someone with her the whole time because women need to be cared for when they've given birth. So it's, I find interesting the focus on midwifery care for birth. What I find interesting is the lack of midwifery care directly one-to-one -one afterwards. When that mother is exhausted from a four-day labor, may have bled, may have had a, a very difficult experience, is trying to breastfeed and is alone on a ward. And that's inhumane, but it's also the fact that we don't value women as a society. If we did, we would never tolerate that. So it, it's, yeah, it's looking at the, how we can challenge fundamental structures. And so as women, what I argue for is for women to say, look, we don't always like to ask for things because for asking for anything is asking too much. And that's something we need to challenge is to say, actually, it's not asking, it's demanding. And it's expecting that these standards should be applied. And as training midwives as well, it's going into the practice knowing that women should be the experts in their own body as well we need to be able to instill that you know that we should be educated in our bodies until I had a baby until I became a mother although I have one and I knew that she grew me and she had three babies and stuff I don't think I really respected it and I don't think I really understood the power that she showed and the strength she showed because it's a vulnerability in giving birth there's a vulnerability in it so I felt that actually you know apologies to my mum and <laughs> So there was, yeah, so I, I felt that we needed to talk about why we don't invest more in supporting women in midwifery and postnatally and in breastfeeding support as of right. And as a breastfeeding counsellor, I'm a voluntary breastfeeding counsellor, as most are. And I felt, you know, it's an example of the unpaid work that women do throughout our societies. The, you know, the amount of work we do as women. We do helplines, we do one-to-one -one care, we do, you know, we're doing all of this, and I do it for love, not for money, which makes me a mug, I suppose, but I love it. Unpaid and also not economically valuable. Well, exactly, there's the uh, economically inactive. I spend all the money, so I'm quite active, you know, the, the, the economy would collapse without me. Um, but that's because we don't have a village. Well, exactly, so that was the, and, yeah, I mean, you th know, that is the fundamental problem that we... 
I'm not to say that I'm against nuclear families. I live in one. I know what the bubble is. But we, in terms of not having that village, and part of the reason we don't have that village is because our mothers are in paid work because retirement's getting later and later. Our sisters are all in paid work because that's what we do. And we are about to go back to work. So even our neighbours aren't around to help us. So if we are financially able, we may get a postnatal doula, and that is very helpful and I think, yeah, wonderful. And our society should value what we do from pregnancy, birth, and and beyond. We just chatted a little bit before and I was quizzing you a little bit about the economic side of all of that because this is all invisible, unpaid work. And, you know, we reward status with pay in our society. So it's very clear, isn't it, patriarchy? And I guess, you know, there's no money invested in this. There's no money for doing that role, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that shows where our society's priorities are. Um, and I really detest conservative groups who talk and go on about motherhood but they never want to bite the bullet on funding it on economic it's that, contribution. It's an absolute, it's an insult when you have, you know, I'm, I'm lefty, when you have, and this is one of the difficulties actually of writing in this field that a lot of people put me down as you just want stay-at-home mums, you know, blah, blah, blah. but actually that's not what I'm arguing for. I'm at 100% for women to make choices in their, in their life that fit what they want to do. Autonomy, self-determination, absolutely fundamental. So one of the most difficult things, I suppose, is to, is to see right-wing groups or conservative values talk about the family. But what they do is they tax a family to the hilt. So they don't, they don't have a personal allowance per family member, child, mother, father. They, ta they, would, they would tax you as a collection of individuals, which means that if you do have, want to have a period of time where one parent is doing the care work, the one salary is taxed as an individual. You pay you know, up to 3,000 more per t in tax per year than two people earning the same. Whereas if you go and try to seek state support for the work you do, you are, your family income is the family global income. So on the one hand, you're exploited by our political and economic system. And on the one hand, you know, on the other, we're, vet you know, we're fetid as all. You know. And women are so messed up by it, actually. The, you know, the situation that women are in at the moment having babies and the work story for most of the women that I meet, they are completely pulled in two directions about it. I mean, I, I've, I run a postnatal group and it's one of the big things that's discussed all the time about this, I, I want to be with my baby, I am a mum, I want to feel that's important, but actually I don't have a choice. And they've, we, we've somehow allowed this to happen, that the situation is there, that they really don't have a choice. I'm going to move to Karen for summing up. Um, I've written loads of things down. Thank you. It's, I've just been absorbing all evening. I think other people have too. Um, have you enjoyed it? Would you like to give our speakers a round of applause? Thank you, Dennis, Becky, Vanessa, and thank you, Mark. And thank you, Marta. <laughs> Thanks for coming. I think we've probably we done. done. Yeah, thank you very much. Have a good rest of the evening. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off.
This broadcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.